Hello and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus, episode 43. That's 43 weeks you've been listening to me waffle on in this particular format. And just a quick word about that. You've been listening to an awful lot of just me lately. And the honest truth is the intention is always to have guests and other people on to get a bit of variety of thought and idea bring some news uh, from a different geeky point of view, and generally just to break up the monotony of my voice. The problem is scheduling. We don't have the advantages that we used to have back in the Geeks at the Gate days. Back then, there was a whole bunch of us. There was like eight or nine of us on the roster at one point. And we could always find a few of us who had time to get together and talk about stuff. Then there was lockdown and it was difficult to do things over Zoom. And everybody's lives changed during the pandemic. Most of us have additional responsibilities we didn't used to have. And suddenly getting everybody together in an evening is significantly harder to do than it used to be. And it's kind of the same with guests. When I switched to this format, I had quite a lot of guests on initially. And then lockdown finished. And people had to go back to work. And I don't know why it hadn't occurred to me that scheduling was going to get harder once people were getting back to their normal routines. But it is certainly getting harder now that people are back to their normal routines. So we're working on it. We're going to figure it out. But for now, thank you for continuing to listen to me. Okay, and first order of business in listening to me this week is the Obi-Wan Kenobi trailer, which is, for once, I have breaking news. That dropped today as I record this and as you listen to this if you listen to this on the day it drops on the 10th of March. And I was nervously optimistic about Obi-Wan. I think I still am. I love Ewan McGregor as an actor. I think he's astounding. And I really liked him as Obi-Wan. He was one of the bright shiny lights in What I'm afraid I still consider to be the immense morass of darkness that was the prequel trilogy. And yes, I know, I know how many of you grew up with the prequel trilogy and love it. And that is fine. But I'm old. I grew up with the original trilogy. And the prequels simply do not do it for me. But Ewan McGregor is amazing. And what I see in the trailer looks pretty good. Um, Spoilers for a trailer if that bothers you. I'm certainly not blowing the spoiler horn for this. Uh, The trailer is up on the show notes page, by the way. Uh, Just go to www.destinationvenus.co.uk, click on the blog spot and look for episode 43, or, you know, Google it. It's on YouTube. It's not hard to find. So what do we get? We get a clearly much older Obi-Wan than we've seen before, watching a young Luke Skywalker, or at least a child we assume is a young Luke Skywalker, running around the um, home of Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. And we get to see Uncle Owen, actually, who is clearly around and about the place. And we get hints of the dark side. We hear Palpatine. We see Vader's castle, although not Vader. Um, Although I do believe I've read that Hayden Christensen is in this. So, you know, I'm expecting we will see Vader. We see some other Sith-adjacent types, Uh, certainly a woman with a lightsaber. And we get a voiceover that says the key to hunting Jedi is patience. They're always going to give themselves away by their compassion, which is a very dark-sidey thing to say. It's Sidious that says that, so, you know, of course. Such music as we hear in the trailer is pretty good. We know that um, John Williams is involved with the music for this series, which is awesome. And it all looks very, very Star Wars, which is great because I want more Star Wars in my life. I think we also get to see some stuff that's that's not on Tatooine. Now, obviously, most of this is going to have to be set on Tatooine because Obi-Wan's job is looking after Luke and that's where Luke is. But oh, do I need to see much more Tatooine? It's supposed to be the furthest spot away from the bright centre of the universe. So why on earth does everything? in Star Wars at the moment, revolve around Tatooine. It's annoying. And yes, Boba Fett and Mandalorian, I'm looking at you. You could have gone anywhere. 
Still, from what I've seen, I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, it's coming out on May the 25th, which is annoying because Lucasfilm keep doing this. The obvious release date for anything Star Wars-y is May the 4th, isn't it? I mean, they even call it Star Wars Day. So why are they releasing it on May the 25th? May the 4th be with you, for goodness sake. Oh, dear, oh dear. Anyway, it's coming. I like the sound of it. And we're going to be talking about this again before it happens. I'm not waiting till May to talk about Obi-Wan again. But for now, we'll leave that little bit there. So what's next in geeky news? Well, we are going to have to take a little swing back to what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, I'm not going to get involved too much in discussion of what's happening on the ground and the rights and wrongs of it. I think I made pretty clear where I stand. I think most of us are standing in roughly the same place on this. Um, but there is some geeky involvement here uh, in the shape of the international hacktivist group Anonymous, who have basically seem to have declared war on Russia. Obviously, one of the big things in any conflict like this is information. and it does seem very clear that the Russian authorities are making it very difficult for the Russian people to have a clear idea of what's being done in Ukraine. Um, they're being told it's a, a special operation, not an invasion. They're being told that they're fighting Nazis. They're being told that the Ukrainians are the belligerents here and that they're moving in to liberate the country. Now, obviously, looking out from outside in, from the West, we know that's not true. But if you can only watch the TV channels that are available in Russia, you don't have access to that information, except for a few minutes. Um, last week, when Anonymous claimed to have hacked into Russian state TV and into Russian streaming services to show real footage of the appalling events that are unfurling in Ukraine. They also have released a statement on Twitter stating that um, this is the biggest anonymous op ever seen. Um, they've said that they're worried that some governments will see what they're doing as a threat and try and make them look bad. Because obviously, if they can do this to Russia, they can do this to anybody. They said they've been in the, light, the limelight before. They've made the news plenty of times, but never anything like what they're doing now. They say they abhor violence, police brutality and war and would never choose to hurt anyone physically. And they want to remind everyone to remember that when other governments turn their eye on them, which they claim will happen. They then sign off with we can change the world for the better. This has always been the idea. Ideas are bulletproof. Signed, hashtag anonymous. Uh, they then did a very quick um, follow up tweet just saying, F Putin. Now, anonymous is always problematic precisely because they're anonymous. They're completely unaccountable. Nobody knows who they are. And also, that means anyone can claim to be anonymous. So you've got to always look at these things carefully. But so far, what anonymous is claiming to have done here seems to me to be pretty good. And I like the idea. That when geeks go to war, they sit in their bedrooms and hack other people's computers. That's, you know, that seems on point to me. Uh, other geeky stuff that's been done with hacking, not claimed by Anonymous, but somebody has been involved. Uh, all of the electrical car charging points on a particular stretch of the freeway outside of Moscow were hacked so that their displays read, and please forgive my pronunciation here, Putin Mudak which roughly translates as Putin is a dickhead. And that's immensely childish. Probably not going to change anybody's mind about anything. But it's also hilarious. And again, I love the idea that that's the kind of thing a geek can do. Uh, I'm not going to go into any more about this right now, although this, is going to, this whole scenario is going to come back up in our science segment a little bit later on. But for now, let's stick with the world of geek and see what else is happening in the geeky news. Well, we've gotten our first detailed look of what Tatiana Maslany is going to look like as Jennifer Walters, the She-Hulk, in the forthcoming Disney Plus show from the most unlikely of sources. We've seen some you know, low-resolution, uh, on-set photographs that have been taken from a distance already, but now we've got some really detailed, 
high-resolution imagery from Thermos. Yes, you heard me right. That's not a new Marvel character. That's the company that makes the vacuum flasks. What happened was somebody, at Ther- presumably at Thermos, or at least their marketing department, put up some merchandise related to the show for sale on Amazon, featuring pictures of Tatiana Maslany as She-Hulk. Now, these have been taken down, but this is the internet. So obviously, the the images were widely shared. So if you want to see them, you can go to Comic Book Resources. Uh, the link is in the show notes. And it looks good. Comic's accurate. Um, I pres- unless they're going to CGI her to make her bigger, she's going to be a little small as a Hulk. But that's fine by me. Actually, I don't see the need particularly to go CG heavy here. Uh, and she's Tatiana Maslany. Of course she looks good. And of course she's going to be brilliant because she's Tatiana Maslany. Uh, although I'm going to find it strange as a huge orphan black fan seeing her playing only one person. I suppose she's playing two. Hmm. Anyway, that's the story such as it is. Links in the show notes to the CBR article uh, where you can see the offending Thermos products. Thermos. Who would have thought we'd be getting our geek news from from Thermos of all places? We live in strange times, folks. We live in truly strange times. Well, amidst all of that good stuff for Marvel, we do have some, well, it's bad news if you care about it at least, from DC. It looks as though the Aquaman and Flash movies that are forthcoming are not quite as forthcoming as they should have been. Uh, Both appear to have been pushed back to 2023. We're not going to get them this year. I'm sanguine, to be honest. I saw Aquaman. I quite liked it. Ezra Miller, I think, is okay as the Flash, from what I've seen. But... I find it so difficult to get excited about anything from the DCEU that I so they're going to be late to her. All is not lost if you are an ardent DCEU fan. The Shazam sequel is going to be a little bit earlier than planned. So given that that's one of the more popular of the existing DCEU movies, that seems to make sense, actually. More on that in the show notes. I'm mentioning it here because it is geeky news, but I'm not going to go into detail because I just don't care. Clearly my bias is showing, though, because we are going to go and take a look at what's going on at Disney+. Plus. There was an annual shareholders meeting, which obviously they filled with lots of highlights of uh, forthcoming projects, including a clip from the series I Am Groot, which is going to be an animated show on Disney+. Plus. Uh, they obviously are still has made its way online. Uh, you can see it over on CBR.com. Uh, links in the show notes. Uh, it, it looks like Groot or Baby Groot, at least. Uh, we don't really know much else about the show, except it's going to be a series of shorts. Uh, everything's going to be directed by uh, Kirsten Lepore. Uh, James Gunn is executive producing, so they've got that oversight. And it's supposed to be out in um, 2022 at some point, so at some point this year. Vin Diesel is doing the voice again. Um, I I hope he has time to learn all the lines. And uh, it's been teased that we might see Groot's homeworld as well. So we've got a couple of little minor details there. The show is certainly going to bring the cute, which is popular right now. I think Grogo's uh, proved that to us. So we'll see. I don't know. This is a Disney Plus show I'm actually not that excited for. But then I strongly suspect they're not making it for 50-year-old fat blokes. So I I do also suspect that the audience is there. I mean, It really does seem that uh, Disney Plus can't really put a foot wrong. And of course, having claimed to not really care about the DCEU, I really don't. I am a DC fan. And so I can't move on without talking about the Batman. Because... Oh my. I'm not going to shock anybody if I say that it's not my favourite Batman movie, because that's clearly going to be Batman Returns until the day I die. Honestly, you could produce the, the most perfect piece of cinematic amazingness, and I'm still going to prefer Batman Returns. It's because of when I saw it, where I saw it, who I saw it with. It's, you know, it's a big deal in my life, Batman Returns. What I am going to say, though, is that it might be the best Batman movie I don't think it's the best superhero movie. I think that 
is still with Into the Spider-Verse for me, but it is a magnificent piece of work. There are a couple of choices that I'm not particularly happy with. I don't like the Riddler and not a big fan of Catwoman's mask, if I'm honest. But the script is solid, the story is solid, and the performances are beyond excellent. It might be the best movie you see this year. It won't win Oscars because genre films like this never do. I think it's probably deserving of one. Best picture would be a tough call to make at this stage in the year, but certainly there are some performances there that are Oscar worthy, I would argue. And, you know, special effects and makeup and all that kind of stuff. Uh, not costume design, because, you know, the Riddler and Catwoman's Mask. No spoilers. I'm not sounding the spoiler horn. It's out now. You can book tickets to go and see it at the Everyman Cinema and then come downstairs from the Everyman Cinema into Destination Venus and buy some Batman comics. That would be awesome. Other cinemas and comic shops are, of course, available. But seriously, do go and see it. Even if you're not normally a superhero fan, go and see it. It really is an excellent piece of work. But we have a lot of other stuff to go over this week. So we're going to move on now and see what's happening in the world of... Science! Yeah, the jingles are back. Of course they are. So there's lots of science going on this week. And we're going to start with something that is both awesome and extraordinarily concerning. And that is genetically modified mosquitoes. Now, I am not anti-GMO. Humans have been genetically modifying organisms for millennia. Uh, That's basically all selective breeding is. It's just really slow. And I do very firmly take the view that no technology is inherently good or inherently bad. There are only good and bad uses of technology. Now, I'm going to leave it to you to decide whether this particular use is a good use or a bad use of this particular technology. What is happening is um, a company called Oxitec is genetically modifying mosquitoes as living pest controls. Now, this is continuing a pilot scheme that started in 2021 in the Florida Keys, and it's being extended to up to four counties in California. So how does this work? Well, the company genetically modifies male mosquitoes in the lab with a gene that means they can never have daughters. They can never have female offspring. These mosquitoes are then released into the wild. They mate with regular mosquitoes and only the male offspring of that connection survive. So over time, what you should see is a massive decline in the mosquito population. Now, this is, as an aim, an undeniably good thing. Mosquitoes have probably the highest body count of any organism on Earth, probably even beating us. That's how dangerous mosquitoes are. Um, They spread malaria, they spread dengue fever, they spread any other amount of particular horrible nasty things. So if we can reduce the mosquito population, that is a good thing to do. This obviously allows us to tackle the mosquito population without resort to chemicals that will be harmful to anything else. If a genetically modified mosquito is eaten as food by another organism, it will not have an effect on that organism. So the only organism that suffers from this are the mosquitoes, which we absolutely want to fight. So on balance, I am kind of okay with this, but it's playing God, isn't it? And I'm always a bit nervous about that. In Florida, the permits um, to do this only covers one county, Monroe County, which stretches down the Florida Keys. Um, and you know, it's not like they did this on a whim. There was a more than a decade of debate about this. Uh, as I say, the, the California license stretches over four counties. I think they're smaller than Monroe, though. So the, the, the actual geographical area is about the same. We'll, we'll follow this one with interest, I think. It's, um, it's kind of good but concerning, I think is where I'm filing it for now. 
Okay, speaking of things that are definitely not cool, but equally definitely concerning, uh, you may have seen on the mainstream news that the nuclear power plant, or former nuclear power plant at Chernobyl uh, in Ukraine has come under the um, control of invading Russian, Russian forces. Uh, and we reported last week on a massive radiation spike uh, in that area, something like a 20-fold spike in radiation. Well, now it turns out that the plant has also lost power. Now, this is not a necessarily concerning... Well, obviously it's concerning. Clearly, it's anything that happens at Chernobyl is concerning. Um, it's not necessarily imminently dangerous. Um, but it does mean that the roughly 20,000 spent nuclear fuel units held in the plant's cooling tanks will no longer receive active cooling. Now, officials in the Ukraine who, let's be balanced about this, do have an incentive to big this up, have warned that this could increase the likelihood of the evaporation and discharge of nuclear material and that anyone in the plant could be receiving dangerous doses um, of, of radiation. Energy experts at the UN kind of say, look, these spent fuel rods are 22 years old now. Uh, they're much colder than they used to be. You know, a, lot, a lot of their energy has dissipated over the last 22 years. That kind of event is quite unlikely. Uh, but as I say, anything is is concerning when it's to do with stuff like this. Um, the Ukrainian uh, State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection of Ukraine, um, I'd use the acronym, but the acronym is SSSCIP, and that's even harder to say, uh, has blamed the power outage on damage caused by the occupiers. That's a direct quote. Um, there's no independent verification of that, but I think I'm going to file it under seems quite likely. Um, so we will see where we go. Uh, the UN's International Atomic Energy, Ag Energy Agency, can't even say that, have expressed increasing concern for the well-being of staff at the Chernobyl site. Um, it does seem as though the, the staff are kind of being held hostage. Um, they'd normally leave the plant after work hours have ended, but now they're being forced to live on site. That's clearly unnerving for them and their families. Um, so, yeah, we'll we'll keep a, a weather eye on this one. Um, I've had a, a long-term interest in Chernobyl, uh, and so I will keep coming back to this, uh, and I will definitely be keeping my fingers very firmly crossed. Aside from that, for now, the, the biggest impact that the whole Russia-Ukraine situation is having on science is the way it is beginning to seriously limit space science. Uh, Russia has been a major part of space science and space exploration since there has been such a thing. Uh, it was working very closely with the European Space Agency on several projects, all of which are now euphemistically on hold. Uh, so there's a, a Venus mission uh, that was supposed to be going uh, jointly between uh, Roscosmos and ESA. Uh, that's not, that's almost certainly not going to happen now. And all of that science is is gone. We're certainly going to miss the launch window for this year. Um, the European rover mission was also jointly run with Roscosmos. That should have been launching this year. It's now not going to do so. And if it misses its launch window, at best, it gets put back a couple of years because that's just what happens when you want to go to Mars. Uh, there are only certain windows when it's sensible to, to launch. Uh, so if we miss this one, and it looks as though we're going to, we're going to have to wait for the next one. That has knock-on effects for other aspects of Mars exploration, because the European rover was supposed to be a proof of concept to show that, yeah, ESA can successfully land and operate a rover on Mars, because the next European rover is supposed to be the thing that goes and picks up all the samples that NASA's Curiosity rover is currently bagging up and leaving for us to find. So the knock-on effects for all of this in space are massive and, you know, they're going to hold us back quite a lot. Now, clearly, you know, even as a hardcore space geek, I am going to say that that's a long way from being the worst thing that's happening as a result of this conflict. But 
I do think this shows the kind of unintended consequences that people don't think about. And it further underlines that war is a bad thing, which, you know, is not exactly a hot take, but wars like this don't just cause huge amounts of suffering and destruction. They're also really expensive, which means there's going to be less money to spend on things like space research and science in general. And those projects that are funded are going to be less successful and take longer and be more delayed. War is really bad for science gigs. Does that count as the boring preachy part? I think we can count that as the boring preachy part, can't we? So moving on to yet more bad news in science. Because I'm not arachnophobic. I'm really not. I don't have a massive problem with spiders. But at the same time, I prefer them to be solitary and not that close to me. So imagine my utter delight on reading a new report about spiders that hunt in packs. Yeah, actual packs of hunting spiders. It's a scenario that I imagined was purely within the recesses of my nightmares, uh, but 20 of the roughly 50,000 known spider species actually live in colonies. One, um, and I apologise for my appalling Latin, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this, Analosimus eximius lives in colonies of about a thousand spider individuals, all in the same place, all building webs spanning several metres. And when prey falls into this huge web, these spiders actually work together to coordinate their attack, which means they can take down much larger prey than they would be able to if they were solitary spiders like nature intended. This new study is showing that the spiders responding to vibrations in the web to choreograph a sort of swarm, synchronised swarm kind of thing. Um, Raphael Johnson, um, a researcher at the uh, Centre on Animal Cognition, uh, at the University of Toulouse, described this as um, fantastic, which is not the word I'd have chosen. Um, the actual quote, he thinks it's fantastic there is no leadership role among the spiders. And I suppose, yes, if we can avoid having a king of all spiders or a queen of all spiders, I'll go with that. Maybe that is fantastic news. What actually seems to happen is that the colony attacks, the spiders synchronise two movement stages. So they close in on the struggling victim and then stand still and then close in a little bit more and then stand still. So they can time the approach so that every single spider in the group strikes at once. Um, so Johnson's team has discovered that all of this is driven by vibrations in the web. So nothing is, is consciously controlling this. They're, they're working on reflex. And this is interesting. I mean, obviously, the uh, an organisation researching cognition in animals is going to be interested in this because it appeared to be driven by a cohesive intelligence. And it looks now that it isn't, which, again, super intelligent spiders, not high on my wish list. So I, good, good-ish news, but bad news because it's spiders hunting in packs. And that is skeeving me out just thinking about it. Links in the show notes to a far less squeamish analysis of this actually genuinely fascinating research. I joke, but understanding animal behaviour is a fascinating thing to me. And knowing why particular organisms do the things they do can, you know, tell us quite a lot about how the world works and how nature works. And that's stuff we kind of do need to know. Still, for now, we will leave the science there. And since we're done with science, let's move on to something a little bit more specific. That's right, it's time to talk about... And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, hang on a minute, you were just talking about space. And yeah, you know, I was. But 
it kind of segued neatly into the thing about Ukraine and the science section. And by talking about all the space stuff related to the Ukraine situation over that, in that segment, I've got all of the bad space news out of the way. This next segment, 100% totally positive. First things first, let's talk about the moon. Specifically, let's talk about moon rocks. Because there's a very finite supply of those on Earth. There's quite a lot on the moon, sort of by definition, but they're quite hard to get to at the moment. And what NASA has done as part of its preparations for the upcoming Artemis project is to, for the first time in 40 years, crack open a sample of regolith from the Apollo era um, because it's going to enable scientists to practice techniques they will need to study future samples collected on the aforementioned Artemis missions. This is quite exciting. It actually happened in November, but we're only just hearing about it now because for some reason they didn't seem to think it was a particularly important story. I think it's great. The unopened samples that are being opened were actually collected on the Apollo 15, 16 and 17 missions. Um, two of them, uh, both of them collected uh, by Apollo 17, the commander of which I have actually met. Uh, he's a nice, nice guy, really nice guy. Fascinating. If you ever get an opportunity to meet an astronaut, meet an astronaut. They're fascinating people. But anyway, these samples, both collected by Apollo 17, are going to be studied as as part of this this new thing. They're going to look use techniques such as non-destructive 3D imaging, mass spectroscopy, uh, ultra high resolution uh, micrometry, uh, so they can look at these pristine samples in depth and not damage them is the plan and with everything that's going on it's nice to see just gentle straightforward logical steps being taken towards the ultimate goal of putting humans back on the moon that's a much much better thing to be doing um, a way to bring humanity together in a shared mission and a shared accomplishment I know that the Apollo missions were, you know, part of the Cold War and very much um, the Americans sort of waving a flag and shouting, look at me, look at me, we're better than the Soviets. This most recent era of space exploration, though, has been an absolute beacon of cooperation internationally, which is why I say regardless of the costs, regardless of other very good things we could be spending this money on, it is worth spending this money on space because it's something that can bring us together. And elsewhere in space, much, much further away, there have been some discoveries in the TRAPPIST-1 system. Now, this is um, an exosolar system, uh, a group of exoplanets uh, around the star TRAPPIST-1, uh, the first of which was discovered about five years ago. Um, in 2017. Now TRAPPIST-1 appeared to have seven roughly Earth-sized rocky worlds. Uh, it's since been figured out that some of them, at least one, possibly more, could be in an orbit around the star which would make them hospitable to life as we understand it. Now that makes them perfect targets for the James Webb Space Telescope, which would be able to look into their atmospheres and use spectroscopy to figure out what the atmospheres are made of, which can pick up gases associated with life, such as methane. What is particularly interesting about this is that TRAPPIST-1 is a red dwarf star, which is a star nearing the end of its life. So I guess in galactic terms, what we're saying is if we're going to find life around TRAPPIST-1, we'd better hurry up. Now, clearly, the odds on there actually being life on any of these planets are pretty long. The odds on that life being intelligent are longer, and the odds on that life being able to communicate with us longer still. The reason, really, that I bring stories like this up in the space section is, isn't it amazing that we can do that, that we can look? using instruments here on Earth or very close to it, 
we can look at a star light, light years away that is not even a speck of light in the sky. And not only work out that there are planets around it, but also know how many there are, where they are in relation to that speck of light, and potentially be able to understand what the, the atmospheric makeup around those planets is. Isn't that astounding? I know I keep saying this, but that's one of the things I love about space. It makes me feel small in a good way. And speaking of feeling small in a good way, that's why I like to look at the sky through a telescope too. Uh, so what are your star targets this week? Well, actually, the sky is a bit boring at the moment. There are not a lot of planets around. If you are one of these foolish people who is up very early in the morning in the pre-dawn sky, you can still see a very bright Venus uh, on the eastern horizon. It's getting lower, though, so harder to see if you're in a built-up area. Jupiter and Saturn and Mars are pretty much gone now. You don't really stand much of a chance of seeing them. Uh, they will be appearing in the evening sky, which is much more convenient of them uh, in the not too distant future. So there's that to look forward to. Uh, in the evening sky at the moment, we are a planet-free zone, dudes. Just an absolute planet-free zone. Uh, the best I can point you at again is the Orion Nebula, which if you haven't seen it, is worth a look. Uh, a decent pair of binoculars or a small scope will do it for you. So check that out. And uh, I think that probably is pretty much it for space. So, on we go into the second half hour of the show. I've got a lot of comics to talk to you about this week, so shall we just get stuck in to that? So, we will start with the controversial one and get any potential controversy out of the way. Our first recommendation this week is a comic I actually can't sell you because at the moment I'm sold out. I am trying to get more copies in, uh, but I'm sure you can find it in comic stores elsewhere. Is Hit Me issue one. Now, this is one of those comics where if I tell you the premise, you're going to think it sounds dreadful. And I'm going to be honest, this is a comic that I ordered without looking to see what the premise was. And the reason I did that was it's by a relatively new publishing company, which has been producing some really hot books lately. And so I just literally, as I was going down the order form in January, I just ordered the first issue one that I saw from that company, a company called AWA. I think it stands for Artist Writers and Artisans, something like that. Um, so I'm going to tell you the premise, and you're going to think it sounds skeevy, and I'm going to assure you that it's not particularly. Um, it's a thriller, kind of an action thriller, and our main protagonist is a sex worker. Uh, she is a masochistic sex worker, and she takes money for people to hit her, basically. And yeah, that sounds skeevy as all heck, but bear with me. That's not what the story's about. That happens to be the background of the character. She witnesses the murder of a very wealthy client, and everything proceeds from there as she tries to protect herself from the people who what done the murder and also perhaps get a bit of justice going. It's set in the world of uh, sex work, sex clubs, BDSM, all that kind of thing, a world of which I know little. And my issue with stories like this is always not a moral one, uh, more a cultural one, in that they're usually told for the titillation of people who are not into that kind of thing by people who don't know anything about that kind of thing. Uh, and I'll point you at Fifty Shades of Grey as an example of that kind of literature. This is not that. For a start, nothing about this book is supposed to be titillating. And it's written by people who know the world that they're writing about. The writer, um, uh, Krista Faust, is somebody who moves in those circles, is familiar with that culture. Uh, has been a, a sex worker on the BDSM scene herself. So she's writing from experience. She's not portraying 
this character as a victim in any way. In fact, this is one of the female characters with the most agency I've seen in a comic for a bit. Clearly, for mature readers, it does raise some interesting questions uh, that you may not want to have to answer if your kids get hold of it. But there's not a graphic here. Uh, as I say, it's not a porn book. It's an interesting and gripping crime story set against a, a world that is different from the world most people live in. It's a brilliantly well-told, well-paced story. It's certainly one of the best comics on the rack this week, and I commend it to you. Although, as I say, uh, at time of recording, although I am trying to get more copies in, at time of recording, we are sold out. But you might have some luck contacting uh, bigger shops than ours, uh, which were able to have a higher initial order in the first place. Um, so um, check out OK Comics in Leeds. Uh, they will probably have some comics in. Some comics. Of course, they'll have some comics in. They'll probably have some copies in. Moving on to something less controversial and significantly more mainstream. Captain Carter, issue one. Uh, this is spinning out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, specifically the Disney Plus series uh, What If? Uh, the first episode of which asks the question, what if Peggy Carter had taken the Super Soldier Serum? Well, the show answered that question, and this series tells us what happened next as Peggy Carter comes out of the ice in the modern day and has a slightly different reception to the one that Captain America got. Let's leave that there. It's brilliantly told by Jamie McKelvey, and there is some really, really nice art from, uh, and I'm having to look it up now, you can probably hear the, the rustling. Uh, really nice art by um, Marika Cresta, with colour by uh, Eric Arsinia. I, I, I apologise, Eric, if I'm horribly butchering your last name there. It's nicely done. Uh, it's It's got the same kind of fish-out-of-water vibe as the early uh, Captain America movies had. It works. It really, really works. Peggy Carter is one of the best characters in the MCU, and it's really nice to see her getting another outing on the page. And speaking of Marvel, uh, we've got a couple of other things here. And this one, I think, is a bit controversial, at least for me. Um, there is a new run of The Punisher starting. Uh, Punisher, the King of Killers, is the story arc. That's not what's controversial. I, I don't mind that. I don't mind that we start with a quick recap of the shooting that made The Punisher The Punisher when his wife and children were gunned down in a park in New York. Don't mind that. Happy to have that retold. I don't even mind the change they've made to what the character is doing and who he's working with. I'm not going to say who because I don't want to spoiler it. I don't even mind the revelation at the end where a character who has long been believed dead comes back. Don't mind any of that. It's actually a really good story. It's nicely paced. Uh, there's a bit of action. It's innovative in that no one's done this with Frank Castle before, at least not as far as I'm aware. All of that is good. I, I like to see Frank get taken in different directions. Just having him wandering around New York shooting people is dull as ditch water, so I'm glad they're not doing it. What I mind is that they've changed the, the logo. We've talked about this before, but I'm going to mention it again because I'm genuinely cross about it. On the cover of The Punisher issue one, it is the Punisher wearing the original Skull logo. For most of the comic, he's wearing a different logo. It's still based on a skull. It's got kind of horns. It's a little bit Japanesey, And there were reasons for that in story, which kind of makes sense. And I can sort of let it go, but I know the real world reason why that logo has been changed. And it makes me cross. The logo has been changed because a number of police departments in the US have started doing things like wearing Punisher school logo patches on their uniforms and sticking Punisher school logos on their cars, which is very much the wrong thing to do. The Punisher is not a hero. He certainly doesn't like police officers. And 
all he does is kill. I don't think that's an image that any law enforcement agency should be associating themselves with. And I've reported in the past about how the co-creator of the character has stated yeah, he's not happy with it at all. And Marvel have been quite clear that they do not appreciate this being done either. And so they've changed the logo to make that particular issue go away. And I want to know why. Because what they would normally do if somebody was using their intellectual property without permission is sue them. And I would like to know why Marvel hasn't done that. They've got all the money of Disney behind them. They totally could. And they have in the past sued significantly more deserving uses of things like the Spider-Man logo. So it smacks a little bit of cowardice and it doesn't make me happy. Also, I actually think the new logo just looks ridiculous. I might get used to it, but I'm cross and old and so I probably won't. So I'm going to move on to something that makes me a little happier. And that is Spider-Gwen Gwenverse. I like Spider-Gwen. I like Gwen Stacy. I particularly like this iteration of Gwen Stacy. Whether she's going under the codename Spider-Gwen, Ghost Spider or Spider-Woman, she uses all three kind of interchangeably. She's the Gwen Stacy from a different alternative Marvel Universe where she didn't get killed by the Green Goblin. And she occasionally pops over to the main Marvel Universe because she's attended college there. But mostly in her reality, she tries to keep her head down and not get into trouble. But she seems to attract nothing but trouble. And a particular incident causes her to be sent through time and across multiverses so that there are now versions of her that are versions of loads of different Marvel superheroes from loads of different places. Uh, there's a Thor version of her. There's a, a Wolverine version of her. There's a Captain America version of her. There's a Captain Marvel version of her and so on and so on and so on. And this is closely tied to the destruction of time itself, which I imagine she's going to have to do something about before this story's over. It's nicely written. It's a big, beefy book. Both this and issue one of The Punisher are, are more expensive than normal. Gwenverse is 450 as opposed to the normal 350 And Punisher issue one is actually 4 which is... Okay, they're both bigger than normal issues would be, so there's that. But it always strikes me as weird when they make the first issue of a comic series more expensive than all the other issues in that series. You would think they would lead with the cheaper one so that more people would try it. But there you go, that's Marvel for you. Uh, I find their marketing strategies utterly, utterly baffling. But what I do find also is that their comics are extraordinarily good. It's been a while since I've had three Marvel comics in the pick of the week. Uh, but all three of them this week are there absolutely on merit. They are brilliantly written. Uh, they're huge fun. Uh, Gwenverse issue one, written by Tim Seeley with um, Jody Nishijima. Jody Nishijima on art, uh, with colours by Federico Blee and uh, letters by Ariana Mayer. Obviously from Marvel Comics. Huge, huge fun. Can't praise it highly enough. Uh, and so I won't try and praise it further. That's our picture of the week for this week. And that's it for now for comics. And with that, we are nearly done. Uh, just a quick glance over at the Geek Community Notice Board tells me that you need to be getting in touch with the secret lair in Harrogate if you wanted to get some Dungeons and Dragons action going on. Uh, they've got campaigns that are active at the moment. Full details are available in their various social medias and on their website. Links to all of that in the show notes, if I remember to put them there. The secret lair is obviously what used to be the geek bar, now no longer in the bar because the landlord wanted the bar back. But somewhere secretive in Harrogate, you can still find them and play awesome, awesome tabletop role-playing games. They've got all the stuff. Also, just a very quick shout out to remind you that the Geek Pub Quiz, which should have been back last month but was prevented by illness, will be back this month. I have just realised, as I'm starting this shout-out, that I've forgotten to ask 
Steve and Helen, the king and queen of geeks, exactly which Sunday this month it's going to be. I will double check that and let you know on the socials. Uh, and obviously, assuming it's not this Sunday, I'll let you know next week what the actual dates are. But do try and get along because the Geek Pub Quiz has been at the heart of geek culture in Harrogate for a very long time. It's been much missed uh, over the pandemic, and it's going to be very nice to finally have it back. Something geeky and brilliant that I do have the dates for is coming up at the Harrogate Theatre in the not-too-distant future. Um, I'm now just looking down the flyer to see exactly when it is. 2nd of April, in fact, so you've got plenty of time to clear your diaries. But on the 2nd of April... Cherwell Theatre Company will be coming to the Harrogate Theatre with their show Sam and Joe versus Evermore. You will be able to join Sam and Joe's party as they embark on an epic theatrical quest. With your help, our hapless heroes may battle ogres, solve Tolkien-esque riddles and rescue the kingdom's rightful ruler. But can they slay their own demons in the process? Harrogate Theatre. 2nd of April, 7.30pm. Majors, rogues and barbarians abound. More information can be found at uh, uk. Link in the show notes. And of course, uh, you can also find information at the Harrogate Theatre website. And again, there will be links in the show notes. As ever, if you have a geeky thing that you would like some publicity for, just let me know. Contact info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Let us know what's happening, when it's happening and where it's happening. And I will happily shout it out. There is no charge for this service. The Geek Community Notices are free. And so we are almost done. But I am just going to give you a quick review of a TV show that I've just completed watching, which is not, I repeat, not on Disney+. Plus. Yes, other streaming services do exist. I'm talking about Reacher on Amazon Prime. Now, you may be thinking that Reacher is not a geeky show, particularly. Um, it's a show about a big dude out of the army who punches problems to make them go away. Actually, that sounds very much like a geeky superhero book to me. But there is a proper geek connection anyway, because Reacher himself, the central character Jack Reacher, is played by Alan Richson who, of course, was Hawk in Titans. And I presume, spoilers for Titans Season 2 if you haven't seen it, I presume that's why Hawk gets killed. Actually, that happened in Season 3. Spoilers for Titans Season 3 if you haven't seen it. I will be honest, that's the only reason I watched any of this show. I thought I'd give it a try, just on the strength that I liked him as Hawk. And it totally works. Now, I, I haven't read the Reacher books. All I knew about Reacher was that he was some kind of like one-man fighty type chap and it, they're not going to use that as a pull quote in any of the books are they a one-man fighty type chap it's true though um the only thing i knew that that he, that was him and that he was supposed to be absolutely massive because i remember the outcry when they cast tom cruise in the movie version because cruise is many things but big is not any of them richson obviously is he's a massive dude i think six six and you know, there's not a slab of fat on the dude. He's just pure, pure muscle. What I didn't know about Reacher is that he's also supposed to be something of a genius. He's like a really good detective. He was in the Special Forces, yes, but he was also in the military police. And, you know, he was a top investigator there. Now he lives as a hobo. He owns almost nothing. He gets his pension from the army wired to Western Union. And he just wanders America, just checking stuff out. And of course, in this first season, he wanders into a small town in the middle of nowhere to, dis to be immediately arrested on suspicion of the murder of a guy who's been found just outside of town. And to whom it turns out, Reacher has something of a connection. He then has to fight to clear his name, uh, to solve the mystery, and to defeat the malevolent forces that are controlling things in this particular small town. So far, so humdrum. It's very formulaic, but it's good. It's genuinely, genuinely good. Thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. The action is brutal, but not gratuitous. And 
the performances are absolutely solid. Richardson, I liked his hawk. I thought he was a good actor. He is stellar in this as someone whose rage is always just more or less under control, but who really has had quite enough of your nonsense. Thank you very much. And then Willa, Willa Fitzgerald as Roscoe. She was sublime. She's a brilliant counterpoint to Richson's Reacher because he's huge and she's tiny. And when she stands next to him, his massiveness is emphasised in a way that totally works. And her performance, again, as the not love interest exactly, really works. She, she comes across as a properly trustworthy properly principled good cop in a department that maybe doesn't have that many of those and that totally works she's totally convincing in that she's totally convincing as a woman who is never ever going to be a victim which i like at no point does does reacher have to come and save her from anything uh, she does quite a lot of the saving herself uh, then you've got Malcolm Goodwin as uh, Chief of Detectives Oscar Finley, um, who is, you know, they make a, a little bit of him being a sort of an intellectual black guy from up north who's come to this small southern town to run the detectives and people don't quite trust him and he doesn't quite fit in and he's quite annoyed about that. Uh, he makes a good foil as well because he's completely mistrustful of Richardson to start with, Richardson, of Reacher to start with and slowly comes around it's a a beautiful performance and that that change of opinion that change of heart never feels forced which is you know nice to pull off um the villains in the shape of bruce mcgill as grover teal uh and a couple of other people as other villains i'm not naming them all because i don't want to spoil things are suitably malevolent and not quite over the top. There's a little bit of scenery chewing goes on, but only in a very good way. And absolutely delighted to see Christian Crook from Smallville. Uh, she was Lana Lang in Smallville. Come through uh, in another much older role, because obviously Smallville was 20 years ago, uh, as Charlie, who is the wife of one of the potential victims of the murderers. It, it's beautifully done. Very high values, nicely put together, can't recommend it highly enough. It's absolutely awesome. So that is Reacher on Amazon Prime. If you have a Prime subscription, then you've got it. So, you know, there it is. I'd rather it wasn't on Amazon. I don't like promoting Amazon. But if stuff's good, stuff's good. And with that, we are rapidly coming to the end of our time together for another week. So I suppose I should at this point tell you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a copyright feature from Venus Rising Media, engineered by me in Harrogate. Uh, once again, apologies for a couple of um, audio glitchinesses. Uh, again, we've, we've done this on a much shorter schedule than we normally do. And there's a couple of things I just simply didn't have time to engineer out. So apologies for all the intakes of breath. They're annoying. I do try not to, but turns out I'm an oxygen breathing creature. If you have any comments, complaints, thoughts, observations or suggestions for anything to do with the world of geek, particularly if it's in the Harrogate area. But if you want to go national and international, that's fine with us. Please do get in touch on uh, info at destinationvenus.co.uk and we'd love to hear anything you've got to say. That's also the email address to use if you've got anything for the Geek Community Notice Board. So that's it until next week. We will see you at the same time on the same web device, probably. Until we do, be kind to yourself, folks. Be kind to everybody else. It really is important, especially in these times. Stay safe, stay geeky, until the next time we meet around our listening devices to go geeking together. Take care. We'll see you soon.